0: Uh, love this meeting, love Brother Van Gelderen, love the church, and so grateful for the opportunity to be here. Brother Daniel was talking to me in the car about the song that the choir sang on the old rugged cross and what a blessing it was, and he reminded me the most moving choir song I ever heard was at the Southwest Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Now they do a lot of southern gospel music at that church, good music, not, not wild music, But they sang a song I would not have expected to be in their repertoire. Here's what they sang. There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, But one was out on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold. Away on the mountain, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here the ninety and nine, are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, this of mine away from me, away, and, and although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. And here's the verse that really struck me, but none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, or how dark the night that the Lord passed through, ere he found his sheep that was lost. Far out in the desert, he heard its cry. It was sick and helpless and ready to die. And The song goes on to say, Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way that mark out the mountain's track? They were shed for the one who'd gone astray, ere the shepherd could bring him back. Don't ever wonder if God loves you. Thank you so much for allowing me to come. Now, I'm aware that the only thing between you and supper is me. <laughs> I'm also well aware you just heard Brother Shetler, the most exciting speaker in the world. He could read the ingredients on a ketchup bottle and make you want to shout. (laughs) Tomato sauce. (laughs) Sodium. He's great. He's absolutely great. I'm also aware this is the smallest platform I have preached from since junior church i i have bad knees i banged up one of them a little bit ago i'm getting over it i hope i don't re-injure it while i'm here but don't worry if i do the church has excellent insurance i've been asked to speak on the subject of love and holiness lord would you guide me by your spirit and help me to say all and only the things that you want said And we'll give you the praise for all that's done. Thank you for this great meeting. Thank you for the heart of this pastor. And thank you, Lord, that he has allowed you to use him to influence so many others in such an important way. Thank you for the stand of this church. And thank you for the strength of it. And thank you, Lord, for the way they've spent themselves to be a help and a blessing to us in this conference now for so many years. Open our hearts to your truth. Guide me by your spirit. Empower me to say only the things that you want said. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name for what you do. Amen. In life, we are often presented with false choices. I believe in the law, it's called a false dichotomy. Uh, Dr. Curtis Hudson said that when he was a young preacher in the group that was called Primitive Baptists, they would say, Are you a God called preacher or an educated preacher? You couldn't be both. Not in their view. Uh, They said you didn't have, uh, you you weren't empowered by the Spirit of God if you had notes. They said you can't carry fire on paper. Dr. Hudson said, I later learned you can start a pretty good fire with paper. (laughs) Are you a fighting fundamentalist or a nice new evangelical? Do you walk to school or carry your lunch? (laughs) A similar dichotomy has existed in the minds of many believers. We're, We're given the impression we can be strict or we can be sweet, but we can't be both. We can have high standards or we can show love and grace, but not both. We can be holy or we can be happy, but not both. I hope you'll forgive me if I enjoy myself in church. Amen. I spend most of my life in church. If I didn't have fun in church, I wouldn't have any fun. Right. <laughs> and I'll probably say some things I shouldn't say. I have a twisted mind. But if you knew all the things I think and don't say, you'd be very proud of me. <laughs> yes, sir. So I have a, an anemic little outline to give you. I looked in the book, Brother... Uh, Gilmore, your outline was 13 pages long. Dr. Wayne Van Geldrens was 10 pages long. Dr. Jim Van Geldrens was 17 pages long. And I wrote out all the verses to make mine three pages long. (laughs) My dad would often go to the pulpit with an envelope and three words on the back. He looked at one of my outlines and he said, son, it would take me three and a half hours to preach that. I had the uh, responsibility one time, Dr. Chappell, uh, during his leadership conference, was called away because of the illness of a grandson, and I delivered one of his sessions. All I could do was read the notes, That's so I'll just read through the outline. So this will be a little skimpy. Uh, number one, I want you to notice the connection, love and holiness. Love and, or, love and holiness are both commanded in the Bible. I think we know that, but let me give you some verses. I'm the Lord your God, Leviticus eleven forty four and 45. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves. You should be holy, for I am holy. Now, holiness means set apart to God. It means you belong precisely and completely to him. It means that you don't belong part to him and part to the world. You don't have a part of your life that's godly and a part of your life that's worldly. You're all his. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So maybe that's why they're scared of spiders, Brother Shetler. (laughs) For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19, 2, speaking to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you should be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, 26, you should be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have severed you from other people that ye should be mine. The idea of being separated from the rest of the world unto God. First Peter 2, 16, is on target, is free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Now, love is also commanded in the Bible. A new commandment I give you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. That's pretty high standard. They also should love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you use the King James Bible. I don't think I'd have written it the way God wrote it. I, I would have, God, if I were God, I might have said, they're knowing my disciples because of this what you believe because of the doctrines you have. But the Lord Jesus said, the world isn't going to care much about your doctrines. By the way, the world cares a whole lot less about a lot of stuff than you think they do. I I have a friend who uh, quite appropriately surveys his guests, and the number one comment he gets of new people in his church is that his music is boring. And I said, that's not coming from unsaved people. That's coming from church hopping, pastor swapping, entertainment seeking Christians. The people I led to Christ when I pastored First Baptist Church in Bridgeport and I worked at it and God was good. Most years I averaged a person a week down the aisle personally that I've been dealing with, a profession of faith, baptism, join the church. And they never one time asked me, what's your music like at your church? We could have been, we could have been doing chants. They wouldn't care. They just knew they passed from death unto life. But he did say this. Here's what I want the world to know about you. They'll know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. You know, you ought to be able to walk into any God-loving, Bible-believing church and go, "Ah." "Amen." out there they're going to scheme and cheat and steal and lie and attack. In here they love me. That's the hallmark God wanted the world to know his church by. John 15, 2, Every branch in me that beareth fruit, he taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, uh, that beareth not fruit, he purges it. I'm sorry, that, that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Owe no man anything, Romans thirteen eight But love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. You remember The Bible says, if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended, in these thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Interesting. Love God, the great commandment, love your neighbor, the second which is like unto it. Now, before we go too far, let's just settle it that nobody here loves their neighbor as themselves. Do this little exercise. You're driving home. There's a big cloud of black smoke in the air. You get a little closer and there's really bright orange flame underneath the smoke. It's in your neighborhood. The closer you get to realize it's your block and you're unconsciously mashing down on the accelerator. Hurry up. You pull up and go, ah. Praise God. I'm so glad it's my house that's on fire, not my neighbor's. I don't think so. So we got some work to do. This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Holiness and love are commanded in the Bible, but let her be in this extensive outline. Holiness and love are connected in the Bible. Here is part of the theme of this conference, and the reason that God moved on the leadership of the Geldern and the folks involved in planning this is because we so often fail to see this connection. And here's what it says, First Thessalonians 3:12:13, "The Lord make you increase and abound in love, one toward another and toward all men, even to the end as we do toward you that may, to the end He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness." I want you to increase in love that you may be established in holiness. Isn't that interesting? Colossians 3:12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. You're separated. Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering. So the Bible makes a connection between these two, but here's Roman numeral two. There is some confusion. Some see holiness as formality and coldness. When I was a boy, I was born in Greenville, South Carolina, but when I was young, my dad took the Detroit Rescue Mission, and I spent a lot of that, about 10 years of my lifetime. I was maybe in first grade until I actually went off to high school in the Detroit area, and we went to GARB churches. We'd read the church covenant, you know, having blood we believe by the Spirit of God and we promise not to smoke cigarettes and drink booze except for medicinal purposes. That's what it said. You look up that church covenant, that's what it said. I was so glad when I discovered NyQuil. I told you I have a twisted mind. I-, I warned you. I don't know why he has me back. A, uh, and, uh, the idea there was that the morning service was a time of formality to worship God, and we would sing the doxology. My wife grew up at Wealthy Street Baptist Church. There was a little girl there. Her siblings grew up there. Her father and his whole family were saved at Wealthy Street Baptist Church in Grand Rapids. David Otis Fuller was the pastor, and, and uh, there were with people talking before the service one day. And Dr. Fuller walked up to the pulpit. He said, the Lord is in his holy temple. but all the earth remains silent before him. You're going to be holy, you've got to be quiet. You're going to be holy, you've got to be formal. You're going to be holy. You wouldn't want to sing, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? You might could sing when morning gilds the sky. Some... See, holiness as formality and coldness. They see love as warmth and fervor. And they see love as an excuse to disregard holiness. I am an object of God's unconditional love. Nothing I could do would make God love me more. Nothing I could do would make God love me less. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. Now, the first part of the statement is entirely correct. The application is entirely wrong. Well, you got to watch out for performance-based theology. I understand that. I think someone did a session on that here. It was very, very good. You do not gain God's love by what you do. You are accepted in the beloved. Amen. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter what you do. Right. Right. That's right. I had a lawyer friend named Mike Thomas. He went to heaven a couple of months ago because of COVID. He was an anti-vaxxer. Wonderful Christian. And uh, his testimony is phenomenal, how his dad got saved, and he was a soul winner and a witness to his clients. His his, uh, card said, Integrating Biblical and Legal Principles. Wouldn't do divorces. And uh, he had the youth group for a while at his GRB church in Flint, Michigan. And he said to the teenagers, hey, we're all going to read through the New Testament this month. Now, that's not as big of a task as you might imagine. In my Bible, there are about 200 pages in the New Testament. So you might need to read about seven and a half pages a day. Imagine that, trying to get a kid to read seven and a half pages of the Bible. What a terrible thing. (laughs) And somebody came and said, well, you can't do that. That's performance-based theology. The idea of love is you can do anything you want because God loves you. That's what they think. I said to Brother Thomas when he told me that, I said, he didn't believe that. Tell me that when his daughter gets married, he will not care how his son-in-law treats her. As long as he loves her. Uh, they think, uh, if you're loving, yeah, there's a new term out. Uh, I guess it's a little old now. I don't quite understand it, and I'm pretty sure some of the people who use it don't understand it. But they say, well, we want our church to be gospel-centered. One of my problems with all this stuff is I'm too old, and I remember. See, you can get silly if you're not careful. I remember when, when pleated pants came out instead of plain front pants. Preachers preached against pleated pants because that was worldly because they were popular. I mentioned that to Dr. Hiles. He said yes. And before that, they preached against the plain front pants because they were worldly because they weren't as modest. Now, be careful. All this stuff just goes round and round. So when I was a young pastor, we were working on winning people to Christ and seeing people saved, they'd say about our church, well, all they do over at that church is preach John 3.16. Probably wasn't true, but I really don't like your attitude toward John 3.16. You may preach something other than John 3.16, but you'll never preach anything better than John 3.16. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it as the rest. And now, because I don't only preach John 3.16, I'm not gospel-centered. But you know what What some of those people mean is that if you ever take the Bible and apply it to the lives of people and tell them that because the Bible says this, they ought to live that, you have missed the gospel. I don't know. I read a verse once of the grace of God that brings salvation at the period of all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we ought to live soberly, righteously, and justly in this present world. So, here's why we're confused, in my opinion. Let me give you a couple thoughts. And I'm going to give you some thoughts that are not proven in the Bible. They're just my ideas. They they apply to what we're saying. I think they'll help you. If you don't agree with them, you don't have to. It's just fine. This is not one of those. (laughs) I'll tell you when it is, all right? (laughs) We get confused because we have a wrong assessment of God. That's letter A under number two. See, if I was supposed to start at 2:30 and go till 4 o'clock, I don't. I feel like I used to feel when I was a kid driving a beat-up old Chevrolet around the hills of Tennessee, and the speed limit was 75. I'd say, I don't know if I can make it, but I'll try. <laughs> one of my favorite verses about our attitude toward God, one of the most, I think, instructive, insightful verses, Psalm 50:21. Uh, Thou, these things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Watch this. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. Almost everybody has the tendency to think that God is like them. A great preacher that your preacher and I knew and loved, did a lot of good, said some things weren't wrong, weren't right. Right? And uh, and he said he, he's fond of saying God's a lot like more you uh, more, uh, God's a lot more like you than you realize. No, he's not. Right. <laughs> no, the heavens are high above the earth, so His ways are high above our ways. You thought I was holding. Now, now are we like God? Yes, we're a little bit like God. We're made in His image. We are body, soul, and spirit. And uh, and we're we're distinct from the rest of God's creation. The 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 sheep are not made in the image of God. And the dogs and the donkeys are not made in the image of God. But man was made in the image of God. But don't make the mistake of thinking he's like you. Don't make the mistake of thinking he's like the human authorities in your life. This verse may be taken out of context. I think there's a truth there. It's the same story, but the Shetler mentioned from Luke 8, it's three times found in the scripture, that story. and In Mark chapter 4, verse 36, the Bible says, when they sent away the multitude, they took him, talking about our Lord, even as he was in the ship. Now, the best I can tell, Bible commentators think that meant that he hadn't got dressed up, he hadn't changed from his previous activities, and he just got in the ship and they took him even as he was. But I think it's a real fair application to say, you don't make the Lord into your image. You take him as he is. God is not what you think he is. He is what the Bible says he is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm going to give you some of my thoughts here. Most people seem to think of their heavenly father and tend to think of their heavenly father as they think of their earthly father. Your pastor, Pastor Mangel and I, were both best, blessed with great dads. I, I used to get to preach at a stewardship banquet or something at uh, Downers Grove, and my favorite part was sitting around the table listening to his dad talk. And uh, just, just a man of great wisdom, great faith, great attitude. My dad never heard the gospel until he was 21 years old, and the first time he heard it, he said, that sounds like a good deal to me. And he got saved. He would tell you to the day he died at the age of 91 that he was saved sitting in his seat because that's when he decided to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He walked forward, Monroe Parker met him at the aisle. And somebody dealt with him. And my dad was just always glad to be saved. (laughs) He's just always glad to be in the work of God. His mother was a Methodist. His father was a Catholic. He'd been to church about three or four times in his life. He was the sixth of seven children raised in New England during the Depression. Had been drafted after World War II. Went out on the GI Bill. Met, met a couple of kids on a bus. And they said, where you going? He said, I'm going to go to Columbia, be a radio announcer. Oh, they said, you ought to go to our school. We got a radio station there and a radio program. Where do you go? We go to Bob Jones University. He'd never heard of it. They got his information. They sent him some material. He was accepted at Bob Jones before he was accepted at Columbia. He thought, well, I like the South. I was in the South in my military training. And he went down on a whim from Massachusetts to South Carolina. And in those days, they started every semester revival meetings. And may still, I don't know. And old Bob Jones Sr. got up and he preached, young man, what if your mother knew everything you'd ever done? Ooh. They said, oh, wasn't my mother, no. <laughs> God does, and then he preached the gospel. Dad said, wow. My dad, the greatest gift that he gave me was the gift of security. My dad taught me to fish. He taught me to hunt. He taught me to tie a hook on a line, and taught me to gut a deer, and he, he taught me to sharpen a knife. He taught me a lot of stuff. But he never made me think I had to do any of that up to his level for him to love me. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress a little bit. I'm, got, I'm going somewhere with this. My dad was extremely positive. My mother was extremely negative. And I'm going to tell you why. They're both in heaven. Now, my mother was born in 1930. She discovered when she was a teenager, and her family got saved when she was in her teens, Methodist preacher, love unto Christ. And uh, she discovered there wasn't all that much time between her birthday and her parents' anniversary in 1930. She told her father to my mother's father. My grandfather was a good man. He was a layman, led singing on the radio, the Old Time Gospel Hour in Detroit, led singing for a Hyman Appleman crusade. I have a letter from Hyman Appleman to my grandfather about the crusade they had and the song that he did. My grandfather said, well, there was another date. We were married secretly, but then you came along, so we had a big ceremony. I'm sorry. I don't believe that. If I'm married secretly, and a baby comes along, I produce the license. Yeah. And my grandmother blamed my mother for being born and was hard on her all her life. I saw it as my grandmother was a good grandmother to me. It wasn't until my grandmother's funeral that it dawned on me that my mother was a better mother than she ever had. But she was very negative. And you can never do anything quite right, you can never quite please her. If I cut the grass, she'd say, why didn't you rake it? If I raked the lawn, she'd say, why didn't you weed it? If I weeded it, she'd say, why didn't you trim the edges? Now, I didn't do the right thing, but I decided as a 14-year-old, I was going to get fussed at anyway. I might as well have some free time, so I didn't even cut the grass. <laughs> my dad went that way. My, uh, my mother said to my father one day, she wasn't joking. She wasn't being ironic. She said, "They're driving down the road, she said, well... You always seem to manage to arrange it that the sun is shining into my side of the car. So maybe 40 years ago, you remember the day when the sun rose in the West? That that was my dad. I'm the oldest of five. Three sisters after me, a brother born when I was 15. He was born in May. I left home in August. Not because of that, but that's just... (laughs) Although looking back was probably a good idea, but anyway. My middle sister is very successful, travels all around the world. She's a consultant, does IT work, project management. And uh, she saved up her points from all of her trips and gave my parents a trip to the Virgin Islands. And she gave them so much cash that they stayed three extra days. She paid for everything. To get back to the airport, she met them. My dad was all excited. And my mother, not joking, not being ironic, said, well, this still doesn't make up for that lamp you broke when you were a little girl. Oh, now, for whatever reason, I gravitated to my dad. <laughs> my mother loved the Lord. She was generous. She was a very hard worker. And for whatever reason, I took on the attitude, and I hope some of the attributes of my dad and my sister's struggle, they went more like my mother. It wasn't hard for me to believe God loved me, because I always knew my dad loved me. I have a son-in-law who's 33, I was talking to him one day, and there's a a bunch of people out here like this, I'm sorry, I can't relate to. J.D. Greer in his one book talks about being a student at Bobby Robertson's school and how much pressure he felt and how he could never do enough and how he could never measure up. And I was talking to another pastor and he felt that way. And I said to my son-in-law, I said, Kurt, I'm sorry, I just can't relate to that. I don't get it. And he said, yeah, that's because we had good dads. So here's what I want you to understand. God is your father, but your father is not God. And if you're not careful, you unwittingly give God the same attitude and attributes that you do, that you know in your dad. God is who the Bible says he is. He's not like what the authority figures in your life were like. They may have been godly, they may have been ungodly, but it doesn't change who God is. So. There are some that view God as loving and liberal and he's the grandfather in the sky patting you on the head when you draw uh, with your crayons on the new wallpaper. Some view God as holy and harsh and you never get it right and you're always in trouble. And if you cut the grass, you should have raked it. And if you rake it, you should have pulled the weeds. Some view God as distant and indifferent. Now, the Bible I find this interesting. I, I use the model prayer as an outline for prayer, for my prayer in the morning. And, and when it says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I think, I, I, I praise God for some of his names, but I praise him for some of his attributes. And the first thing, almost always, that I praise him for is his mercy. Because I read when Moses said, God, I, I'm following you and I don't know your name. You got to tell me your name. Here's what God said, The Lord, the Lord, God Almighty, merciful, and gracious. First thing God said about himself was that he was merciful. That's the first thing he said. So we are confused because we have a wrong assessment of God and we have a wrong view of the attributes of God. Some see God's attributes as competing. Holiness is here and, I, and love is over here and they're fighting and they're arguing and one says one thing and one says the other. Some, a little better, say, well, no, they're counterbalancing. His holiness is balanced by his love. His mercy balances out his judgment. But I would say the Bible teaches something different than either of those thoughts. The Bible teaches that God's attributes are not competing and they're not counterbalancing. They are connected. Psalm 85.10 says, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. According to John Phillips, who is my favorite Bible commentator, John Phillips died as a member of Bobby Robertson's church. This brilliant man, put himself under the authority of a man who never finished the eighth grade. His funeral was at that church. John Phillips is totally anti-Calvinist. He, in one of his commentaries, he says of Calvinism, such a system makes God a monster. Yeah, amen to that. <laughs> here's what John Phillips said. He said, the term met together, one word in Hebrew is used 15 times in scripture and it is always a hostile term. When mercy and truth meet, it's not a pleasant gathering. When they get together, mercy has one thing to say and truth has another. Truth says, we gotta punish the sinner and mercy says, I wanna pardon the sinner. Mercy says, God wants you happy. Truth said, no, God wants you holy. Mercy emphasizes love. Truth emphasizes law. That's how that term is used in the Old Testament, but not in the person of our God. The Bible says that as a perfect expression of the character of our God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial atoning work on Calvary for us, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They're not fighting anymore. In God, they are absolutely reconciled. So, the attributes of God are totally integrated into his person. He is perfect mercy and perfect judgment and perfect peace and perfect righteousness and perfect truth and perfect holiness and perfect love. And there's never an either or and they never conflict with one another. Let me give you a little thought. I got this from Henry Morris. Henry Morris did a lot of creation work, and a brilliant man. Henry Morris gave an illustration of the Trinity that I've never forgotten now. Now, uh, you've heard of the illustration of an egg. you know, you've got the shell and the yolk and the white. All right. You've heard the illustration of water. Water can be ice and steam, and it can be liquid, and, and they can all be together, maybe in a, a slightly melting pond on a day where the temperature causes steam. I, I suppose that's fine. But Morris gave the illustration of space. How many dimensions must there be for space to exist? It's not a trick. Tell me. Three. Yeah, I, I told you it's not a trick. I'm not smart enough to be deceptive like Brother Shetler. <laughs> But he admitted to it. He said he was deceiving us. He told us that. So in this room you have height and you have length and you have breadth. Those are the three dimensions of space. You with me so far? Is this too deep for anybody? So which one of those is really space? They're all space. Oh, so they're all the same. Well, no, we tend to put carpets on the floor and pictures on the wall. They have different functions. We understand that. But you take away any one of them, you don't have space. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our God. Now, if you can find the quote, I'd be happy because Morris went on to say there was actually in the, in the universe a trinity of trinities. And the second part of it was time, past, present, and future. And I never can remember what the third part was. I think it was animal, vegetable, mineral. I'm not sure. But but he showed there's a three threes. But the fact of the matter is God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. If you say any one of them are not God, you don't have God. And the fact of the matter is the characteristics, the attributes of our God are love and judgment and mercy and holiness and peace, and all of them are God. And if you try to take anyone away, if you try to denigrate one because you want to emphasize another, you have not adequately expressed God. His attributes are connected. So, that brings me to the concept. Here's the point. God's love for us Letter A under number three. It's such a complicated outline, I want to keep you caught up here. (laughs) Causes him to desire our holiness. How many of you have children? Uh, How many of you hope your children become drug addicts? How many want your children to come home one day with a tattoo sleeve? They want your children to get married and then get divorced. You mean people, you. trying to rob your kids of fun. No, you want them holy because you love them. You want them kept from that which would harm them because you love them. Here's what the Bible says Ephesians 5:26, 27, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, the church with the washing of water by the word, his word, that word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Why? Because he loves us. It is God's love that tells us to be over. The strange thing about it, we understand that with children. You let your kids pick their menu, very few of them would choose broccoli. They would choose uh, candy. They would choose maybe peanut butter and jelly. They might choose some macaroni and cheese. They wouldn't have many veins. I wouldn't have. Now, part of that's because my mother was German. And the German method of cooking food was to absolutely obliterate it. (laughs) I'd eat a piece of cauliflower, it would disintegrate into a thousand little pieces in my mouth. I'm not making this up, I'm not being uh, poetic uh, or uh, taking a little bit of liberty. I did not know till I was in my 20s that vegetables could be crisp. (laughs) I knew celery sticks and carrots, I didn't know broccoli, asparagus, any of the rest of that could have any... Crunch to it. I was just was all soggy. <laughs> but you do want your children to eat some vegetables, don't you? Because you don't love them. No, well, because you don't want all their teeth to rot out. You don't want them to develop poor health. You don't want them to grow up and have medical conditions that would affect them the rest of their lives. God's love for us causes Him to desire our holiness. Let her be our love for God should cause us to desire to be holy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm 69 years old. I live till September 27th. I'll be 70 years old. That's my three score and ten. Now, you know the, the longer I live, the more amazed I am at how good God is. How kind He is. How loving. I remember as a a young man in college, I heard Bob Jones Jr. say, people say they don't know how a loving God could send anybody to hell. He said, I don't have any trouble understanding why God sent people to hell. He said, I have trouble understanding why God would love us. Yeah. And the older I get, the more I feel that way about me. Amen. Harold Seitler's famous sermon on Mephibosheth He preached it at our church. I had he and Bob Jones Jr. and Roe Parker at the same time. And we called it a Heroes of the Faith Bible Conference. And and Dr. Seitler told about his his child dying, hit by a drunk driver and some other things in his life. And he said in that old gravelly voice, I find no fault with God. I find plenty of fault with Harold Seitler, he said. But I find no fault with God. The more I understand God's love, the more amazed I am. And and it doesn't make me want to go get as far from him as I can. It makes me want to get as close to him as I can. It doesn't make me want to do as many bad things as I can and still be saved. (laughs) Makes me want to please him. Makes me want to make him happy. Makes me want to do something for him. And so you know some of these verses. The great commandment is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind. Second, love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments. Hang all the law and the prophets. By the way, this is going to be important for a couple of things I'm going to say in a minute. Uh, our love for God is followed by our love for and the right treatment of others. Uh, I know a lot of people do make the decision. We're going to be really strict here. We're going to tell the lie. We want to be like a military academy. Okay. I still know a lot of people that uh, send valentines to their drill sergeants that have a loving, warm relationship with the people that were putting them through boot camp. Owe no man anything but to love one another. He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. You're called unto liberty, only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, John says you're a liar. <laughs> How if you don't... Love your brother whom you have seen. How can you love God whom you've not seen? It's all connected. So let me give you a couple of thoughts, a couple of comments. And then I'll, I'll be done early and I'll do like they do in Washington. I will reserve the right to the balance of my time. <laughs> so letter A, let me challenge you about this. We must seek to understand God. Well, nobody can completely understand God. I know, but he wants you to understand him. Psalm 103, it says this. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The children of Israel knew what God did. Moses knew why God did it. Moses knew God's ways. I would tell our staff, uh, you need to try to figure what I would do in that situation or if I would want you to do and do what I would do if I were there. They were extra arms and legs and hands and feet attached, supposedly, and they were great to my heart. Well, you know what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to act on the behalf of God. I'm an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. I represent the Lord Jesus in everything I say and do. I'm to give glory to him. That word is the word doxa. They tell me it's the word for opinion. My behavior is to give others a good opinion of God. I better understand him. Yeah. Jeremiah nine twenty two. Thus said the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. And you know what he said next? I am the Lord which exercised loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. Loving kindness, judgment, doing the right thing to people, righteousness, being right in your behavior. God wants us to understand Him. God wants us to know Him. God wants us to care. You're going to think this is strange, maybe, about how we make Him feel. You know, there's some things I know would make my wife feel badly, so I don't do them. There's a really funny story. It goes way back to before we had children, and I was preaching a, a school camp somewhere, and it's really funny, but she doesn't like me to tell it. It embarrasses her, so I don't tell it. Now, my wife will tell a lot of funny stories on herself. She's really good at taking a joke about herself, and she'll, she'll tell her the silly things she's done, but she doesn't like me to tell that one, so I don't tell it. You know what the Bible says? It says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Dr. Curtis Hudson had a niece and nephew that were killed, I think, real close to each other. Maybe it was in the same car accident, but I'm having a thought it was two separate events real close to each other in time. Their names were Rick and Kalani. Dr. Hudson would always try to get all the children and all the family at his house, either for Thanksgiving or for Christmas. So when you read Thanksgiving, that's your Christmas, that way the other families could have a chance on the other holiday and they're all together and they're watching old movies. Now videos are great, but old eight millimeter home movies are better because you can run them backwards. And we would watch home movies of a, one of my siblings eating a piece of pie, and then we'd run it backwards. It was amazing. He'd put one bite on the plate, another bite, and then pretty soon the whole piece of pie. We had a lot of fun. But you watch all whole movies, and there are a lot of... And everybody's laughing and having a big time. And Dr. Hudson noticed his sister and brother-in-law, or brother and sister-in-law, I'm not sure which, but Rick and Kalani's parents had slipped out of the room. And they're standing on the porch, and they're just holding each other, sobbing. And he said, I'm so sorry. Oh, they said, Kurt, it's fine. We we want you to have a good time. It just hurts so bad. And then Dr. Hudson said he had this thought, Can I do something that makes the Holy Spirit feel like that? My love for God motivates me to be holy. Not to stay out of trouble, not to avoid judgment, well that's valid, that's good, but, but there's a much higher motivation than that because he's been so good to me and he, he saved me, gave me everlasting life. I don't want to do anything that makes him feel bad. Letter B, we must realize that many of those to whom we minister do not understand God. Now, I, I'm all for Isaiah, lift thy voice as a trumpet, you know. And, Cry aloud, spare not, show people my transgressions. I'm all for hard preaching. I tell a friend of mine said, so I got a friend named Adam Thompson. He pastors Capital City Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. It's one of my favorite places to go. When my wife and I went there, I said, honey, wear your long dresses. Now, my wife doesn't have any miniskirts. But I said, I've never seen them there wearing a dress two or three inches below the knee. They're all almost always to the ankle. They're sharp, they're classy, they're really nice people. They're very strict. But they're very, they're very loving. They're always winning people to Christ. And uh Brother Thompson preached at a college one time and they were militant and militaristic and strict and proud of it. He came back and he said, That's not gonna work. He said, I'm all for holiness, but it never works if it's not wrapped in love. Our uh, pastor, my pastor, was our youth pastor for four years, and then he became our principal. When he became the principal, he said, Preacher, what do you want? And I said, Well, how? I want a warm, loving environment undergirded by a consistent enforcement of the rules. I don't want you to see the rules when you walk into the school. I want you to see we love you, we're here to help you, we care about you. I wanted the rules there. I don't wanted the rules enforced, but the rules weren't the big thing. And two weeks into the school year, a young man who now is the principal of a Christian school in Pennsylvania came home and he said, "Mom, they're stricter than they were last year, but they're nicer about it." <laughs> Many of those to whom we minister do not understand God, and we're going to give them a worse impression of Him than they already have. We must emphasize love and mercy. Every child should revel in the love and the mercy of God. We must must preach holiness, that was letter C, letter D, as a consequence of love, not just a fear of judgment. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, that's in the Bible. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Well, that's in the Bible, but I'm having trouble. Are you? Fear God and keep his commandments. There is no fear in love. Anybody want to help me? Do fear God, but if you have perfect love, you don't fear God. Let me give you one more verse that helps me. John 14, 5. If you love me, keep my commandments. Perfect love then may be defined as perfect obedience. And when I'm obedient, I have no fear of judgment. But I don't obey just because I fear the judgment. I obey because I love the Lord. And I'm so grateful for what he's done for me. I was always happy when my dad came home. Our house was a happy place when my dad was there. He'd wrestle and play and tell jokes and have fun. Unless I had done something wrong that day and my mother had said, you wait till your father comes home. Oh, man. Wasn't happy then. And then lastly, I want to say this, so we preach holiness as a consequence of love, not just of your judgment. We must be sure that behind each policy is a Bible principle, and behind each principle is a person that we're trying to please, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me take a minute here. I got lots of time. I'll get all done with this and still tell you the distinctions between sub-super and infolapsarianism. That's a dumb argument of the Calvinists about the order in which God gave his decrees. Calvinists diminish God. They don't mean to, but they do. There is no order with God. God didn't decide this and then decide that. He didn't first decree man's reprobation and then his salvation. God has always known everything. God never said, well, looky there. Well, I guess now I'll decide to do this. No, he's always known, always decided, always doing what he's going to do. So here's, here's the deal. We must be sure that we teach these people that we're helping, that there are principles behind our policies, and a person, the Lord Jesus is going to please, behind the principles. I, there's a book coming out, I've been working on it for years, I taught this three times, took a year each time in our church, and I'd say every week, uh, a principle is a Bible truth I must live by, a conviction is a personal belief based on a principle, and a standard is a guideline to help me keep my conviction. So the principle is, I will set no wicked thing before mine eye. The conviction is, I should not view pornography. The standard might be, I don't have HBO on my television. I don't walk down a certain aisle of the grocery store. Now, I guess you could have HBO and just watch boxing. I guess you can watch down the aisle of the grocery store and go like this. But you're more likely to keep your conviction if you don't do those things. So. Uh, And every principle requires standards to be applied. Why do we have traffic laws? Purpose of traffic laws is safety. I told you it's not tricky, all right? (laughs) Safety. Well, then why don't we just put up big signs that say stay safe? That's the goal, right? Don't give people all these legalisms. (laughs) Because I think safe's about 100. And my wife thinks safe is about 45. And if we're both driving on the same road at the same time, we're going to have trouble. And by the way, why is every speed limit in an increment of 5? Why isn't the correct speed 37? All standards have an element of arbitrariness in them. Can't prove to you that this is the ex, well, this is a really good hair length, I know, but (laughs) that when I had hair off the collar and off the ear and off the eyebrow was the exact correct biblical standard. I just figured it was on the safe side, and I figured we obey in the Bible a principle about a man not having long hair. Now, I'm all for the standards. I really believe in them. I think this church is a wonderful example. Pastor Van Gilden is a phenomenal example of love and holiness, high standards. Uh, I'll tell you this. I probably shouldn't, but people always listen better when I say things I shouldn't. (laughs) A group from Falls and Baptist College of Ministry came to our church many years ago. Our song of the month was, It's Still the Blood. Once I wonder, okay, you sing that here about once every four thousand years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> my song leader is now my pastor. Said, "Preacher, what do you want me to do?" I said, "Well, it's our church. It's our song. Just sing it. No, not try to pretend. Not being mean. Not going to pretend or anything. Right. You know what they did? You know what those kids did? They sat up on the clap- platform and smiled and played along with the song." Were they ever done it here? No. Did they sit in judgment of us? No. No. They came to help. And to be, I don't care if you like the song or don't. I, I do know the lady who wrote it. I've preached at the church in Taze Valley, West Virginia, where Lois Gale is. And uh, she wrote Last Blood as well. I wouldn't like that one as much. But they didn't come in to lord it over us. And if you're not careful, those of you in authority, you're going to give the people under authority that the whole deal is the rules. No, the rules are just something we do to help us please God. I don't care if you have different rules than me. I I didn't even like all the rules when I was running our school. I had rules I didn't like. Because when I didn't have them, they did... stuff I like less. Yeah. <laughs> and as I said, you guys made me do this. But what I do want us to agree on is that we're trying to do it to honor the Lord Jesus. Right, right. And here's what I believe we have done. And I'm not talking about any one place. You go, you go the whole spectrum. Uh, you go the whole different world wherever you are. Here's what I find happening. Usually not the people right in authority. But the people that help them, they wind up focusing more on the policy than the principle and more on the policy than the person. We had a teacher one time at our school, uh, when I was the pastor, we didn't have uniforms. Uh, The seventh grade and above guys had to wear neckties. The guys, uh, sixth grade and under would wear a polo shirt with a collar. And that a teacher is making the second grade boys button the top button of their polo shirt. I said, why? Well, I just think it looks better. Well, do you know we have a handbook? (laughs) And you didn't write it? (laughs) But she just got it in her mind. She was going to be a little more strict. When my daughter was in college, a lady in authority came and said to her, now that checks, but you shouldn't wear it. Huh? If It's wrong. Make a rule against it. It's not wrong. Better wear it. Don't you make up the rules. You know what happens to those people? They get to liking being an authority. Um, you ever get stopped by a police officer? You ever get stopped by one who was a real jerk? And uh, you know how fast you're going. You know what's going on. I don't want your license to go. Oh, all right. How do you feel when you drive away? Lord, thank you for the reminder that I was driving too fast. Bless that dear man as he continues to keep our streets safe. You think, what a jerk. And you focus on his attitude instead of your action. That's good. I've been stopped by some police officers. Uh, Sir, may I see your driver's license, <laughs> registration, proof of insurance. Mr. Ladder, you were how fast you were going. Do I have to answer? <laughs> I heard everything I said could and would be used against me. <laughs> i drive ride away from there. I still got the ticket. I got to pay as much money. But I feel bad about me, not about him. I read an old story years ago, a guy's in the desert with his wife on a camel, and a sandstorm comes up, and they get separated. When the wind dies down, he doesn't find his wife anywhere. He's going all over those sand dunes trying to find his wife. He's going for miles and miles, riding on his camel. And then one day, another sandstorm comes, and he gets separated from his camel. <laughs> he thinks, I'm never going to find my wife if I don't have the camel to travel. I've got to get that camel. So he goes looking for the camel. And one day, his sandals are now shreds of leather, his robe is tattered, his face is blistered, his lips are cracked, and he comes upon an oasis, and there's his wife, healthy and well. Oh, my poor husband, you look so terrible. I'm so sorry. What can I do to help you? Quick, help me find my camel. He started looking for the camel, so he found his wife. After a while, all he thought about was finding the camel. We had rules, standards, whatever, in your church, in your home, because they helped us obey a Bible principle that pleased the Lord. And somewhere along the way, we forgot it was about love and holiness, about relationship and rules, and we just made it about the rules. God's love for us makes him desire our holiness. Our love for God should make us want to be holy. I remember about a girl was, uh, with some friends. They were pretty loose, and she was from a pretty strict home, and they knew it, and they were going to go do something. She said, well, I better not do that. And they taunted her. They said, oh, you afraid your daddy's going to hurt you? She said, no. No, I'm afraid I might hurt my daddy. I don't have many regrets about my relationship with my dad. I loved him and he knew it. I worked for a man one summer and the man, my dad used these words, said to him that they'd never seen a greater example of filial piety than what I had for my dad. I quote him all the time. I used to put out a little paper and I was pastoring called The Preacher's Page and, and I didn't know I did it, but I mentioned dad in just about every issue because one time he said, well, I read The Preacher's Page, you didn't say anything about your father, this one. I'd never tried to, I just did. I don't have anything I regret about the way my dad treated me. But I remember a few times I was busy. I had a lot to do. I traveled while I pastored most of the time. And I would do 50 or 60 meetings a year while I was pastoring and then trying to get all this stuff done. I had little kids at home. And my dad would just pop in and want to see me. And he wasn't on my to do list. (laughs) And I I would see him, but I'd become a. All right, tell be down a minute, man. I wish I had those days to take over and do over again. I've never been sorry about any of the way my dad treated me, but I have some regrets about sometimes some of the ways I treated my father. Lord, thank you for being such a good father. Help us never to buy the false distinction that we must be holy or loving. Help us to realize that. Real love makes us holy, and real holiness leads us to love and help us to live it.